Hi, Nicolo Scalari here. If you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us by going to radioproject.org and click on the big heart-shaped donate button. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks, and here's the show. This week on Making Contact. What does it mean for our policies to reflect that Black Lives Matter, right? What does the school system uh, need to look like in order to fully uplift that Black Lives Matter, right? And it doesn't look like, you know, threatening girls with suspension if they wear their hair in afros, right? It doesn't look like, um, you know, telling a girl, sending a girl home because it's 90 degrees out and she wore short shorts. It doesn't look like, uh, you know, suspending girls for 10 days because they had a fight in the hall. Um, it means that we have to think differently about how we respond to conflict how we understand what these behaviors are, and the kinds of assessments that we do um, on the policies and practices, the kinds of training and professional development that we have in place. On this edition of Making Contact, we'll speak with Dr. Monique W. Morris about her book, Push Out, The Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools, an examination of the experiences of black girls across the country whose intricate lives are misunderstood, highly judged by teachers, administrators, and the justice system, and degraded by the very institutions charged with helping them flourish. Dr. Morris, what was the genesis of Push Out, the criminalization of black girls in schools, and why now? Um, thanks for asking that question. I, it has long been on my soul, uh, the need for us to address what is happening with our girls in schools, and to specifically look at the ways in which black girls are vulnerable to criminalization, victimization, uh, and contact with the criminal and juvenile legal systems. Uh, and so writing uh, Push Out um, with the subtitle, The Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools, was really about expanding the discussion about what most people understand as the school-to-prison pipeline to engage in um, to engage our girls and to and young women and to talk about some of the unique pathways that render them vulnerable to contact with the criminal and juvenile legal system, some of the conditions that take place in our schools and that um, you know impact their learning in a way that render them vulnerable to contact with the justice system. And so, uh, in many ways, push out is an extension mm -hmm. of a conversation that I have been having since uh, the 1990s, <laughs> oh, wow. when I first started doing work on juveniles, uh, juvenile justice and, and young people who are in contact with the justice system. Um, and this work, you know, um, I, I say in the first part of this book that this work was really um, coming to fruition at the time that I wrote the novel Too Beautiful for Words. Mm -hmm. And some may remember Too Beautiful for Words as a street novel that um, was inspired by the coups song Me and Jesus the Pimp in a 79 Granada last night. Mm -hmm. And the novel itself uh, talks about prostitution, talks about revolution, talks about life and hustle. And in the process of going around and talking to young people about Too Beautiful for Words, I discovered many girls and young women who were in detention facilities, who had been pushed out, who had been uh, marginalized in their learning, and therefore extremely vulnerable to underground economies mm -hmm. that rendered them vulnerable to contact with the criminal and juvenile legal systems. Mm. So this book, in many ways, uh, is an extension of the questioning and uh, discussions that I started in Too Beautiful for Words, but really from 
a more you know nonfiction statistics and narrative driven uh, discussion right. about the policies and practices that are uh, making our girls vulnerable. Now, you argued in the book that the school to prison pipeline framework has been largely developed from the conditions and experiences of males and that it limits our ability to see ways in which black girls are affected by surveillance, zero tolerance policies, law enforcement in school, etc. How do you see such policies or law enforcement cultures in school and racial attitudes, biases exhibited by, say, school staff impeding black girls' educational successes? Um, There are many ways that it plays out in our schools. Uh, You know, the first thing I'll say is that much of how we understand this phenomenon is based upon the conditions of men and boys. As you say, I I write that in the book. Mm -hmm. And that means that because the numbers of men are so uh, and boys are so large that we we won't see girls in the same way. And the attention has really been on ways to circumvent um, you know, the, the criminalization of men and boys through various initiatives, all of which is really valuable, right. except that we were doing it in many instances to the exclusion of girls, and that's what's problematic. So when we talk about what's going on with um, girls, we tend to operate as if they are being criminalized in the same way as boys. So we tend to respond to their fights in the same way. We tend to understand how they're getting in trouble in schools and rendered vulnerable to contact with the justice system in ways that have largely been shaped by the experiences of males. We even construct a narrative around this quote-unquote school-to-prison pipeline in a way that um, reflects a very linear understanding of the ways in which kids are in contact with the justice system. It doesn't always play out with a citation on campus or a situation on campus that then leads to an arrest um, and or a contact with the law enforcement or or the criminal legal system Mm -hmm. um, from something that directly happened on campus. Sometimes it's about being pushed out of school and then, again, rendered vulnerable to underground economies that then make our girls vulnerable or the relationships that they have with individuals who are in contact with the law that make them vulnerable or their victimization histories, uh, sexual and physical victimization histories that make them vulnerable. So these are the things that I wanted to tease out. For some, even it's about their gender expression and identity. And that's where we get into or that's that's where, you know, our society has failed to critically examine really the uh, latent ideas about black femininity Mm -hmm. that render our girls vulnerable to contact or push out um, uh, with the criminal legal system based upon how they express being a girl or based upon how we read their behaviors, um, based upon how we think they might be too loud or they might have an attitude or they're dressing too sexy. All these things that um, are placed in Uh, and constructed by our understanding of uh, racial and gender identities that we rarely interrogate and definitely don't do so in the context of of student codes of conduct (laughs) very rigorously. And and yet when we look at the statistics, again, we tend to see that black girls are disproportionately showing up along all the discipline categories. Mm -hmm. Um, They're the only group of girls to be disproportionately represented among all of the discipline categories um, for which data are collected by the U.S. Department of Education. Uh And this is really alarming to me because they're not 
um, a large proportion of girls in, in the student body. There's 16% of girls in the student body, but their representation among those who are suspended, expelled, receiving corporal punishment, uh, in contact with uh, law enforcement on campus are all exceeding that rate. And so what Push Out is is an exploration of what could be feeding these statistics, what could be feeding some of these disparities, and how can we address them? Okay, so all of what you said, I mean, I have like four questions, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but I want to focus or go back a little bit when we think about zero tolerance policies. How do you see it based on your work and your research? How do you see it exacerbating the problem? Yeah. So zero tolerance policies, I'll say from the outset, you know, have not done a very good job of curbing violence and or creating structures of safety in school. Number one, I don't think safety can be implemented by individuals. I think safety is co-constructed between the student body and the caring community of adults that are in their uh, environment. Zero tolerance policies remove the decision making ability of uh, of leaders on campus to respond to situations according to those individual situations. There are mandatory um, actions that are often assigned to specific behaviors, and they also don't provide us with um, the incentive to engage in remedies that are not punitive. Uh, and so we don't necessarily then respond to the root causes of the conflict. We end up responding only to the action and removing kids from campus or removing kids from their learning environment, which can be marginalizing, especially when the actions that are under scrutiny are subjectively um, uh, developed. So based upon our ideas about someone's expression or our ideas about someone's identity, rather than whether their actions actually present a threat to safety to the safety of children and adults on campus. Mm-hmm. So those kinds of things are, are the issues that I, I try to address in Push Out. Um, but it's also really important for us to think through uh, what this alternative educational space might be, mm-hmm. right? And to really understand that um, we're operating in a time that, uh, or we're operating in a time that, that tends to prioritize punishment over repair of harm. And to me, that was deeply problematic. Because in all of the research that I have engaged in with the girls and in researching uh, for push out, um, you know, just removing a girl from campus or removing a girl from the conflict doesn't resolve the conflict. And so it escalates. It escalates in community. It escalates in schools. And uh, it doesn't do anyone um, any good. There's one example that I include in the book that talks about zero tolerance policies and its particular impact on a girl in Brooklyn um, who shared that when she was – in an altercation with a young man in her class, he was he was spitting spitballs at her. And, um, you know, her reaction was to tell him to stop, as, you know, many of us would if somebody were spitting spitballs at you. Right. And um, she got in his face and she got loud and he punched her in her face. And she describes feeling like, you know, well, she describes being taken to the nurse, being escorted to the nurse with her friends, and then also being suspended because she went to a zero tolerance school where if you were involved in the altercation at all, whether or not you actually physically came to blows with that person, she never hit him back. He hit her. She went to the nurse's office. But because she was involved in the altercation, she also got suspended. And um, there were a couple of things that I share with this incident. Um, number one is this was the first of many suspensions for her because what did she learn from that first interaction she learned that the school was not necessarily going to protect her. Right. She learned that she was going to be suspended anyway. So for her, she interpreted that as, well, I might as well fight. 
if no one's going to protect me and we're not going to have a real conversation about mm-hmm. why I'm having this tension and conflict with this person, then I might as well fight. And, and she, she became a fighter. And she also said it rendered her uh, invisible. Exactly. Right. And, and and that's my argument is that mm-hmm. it renders, you know, when we talk about, but, but the argument is that when we talk about the you know, school to prison pipeline, quote unquote, and we give these statistics that only prioritize the conditions of males, that a situation like that would render her invisible because we would only see his engagement in this incident and not hers. And yet um, this is not the only incident that involves boys and girls in conflict that could have been resolved much differently. Mm-hmm. That could have, you know, been an opportunity for discussion, could have been an opportunity uh, to, to engage in anti-violence and education. Um, I mean, there are, are just multiple ways that this could have been resolved outside of society suspension and removal from school. Mm -hmm. And it especially is important when you're talking about girls who have extensive victimization histories, who learn that um, that their learning environment is not necessarily a safe space for them um, as it should be. Mm -hmm. Today on the program, I've been speaking with Monique Morris, the author of Push Out, The Criminalization of Black Girls in School, the first trade book to tell these untold stories and expose a world of confined potential and supports the growing movement to address the policies, practices, and cultural illiteracy that push countless students out of schools and into unhealthy, unstable, and often unsafe futures. It's important to note that black girls represent 16% of female students, but almost half of all girls with a school-related arrest. Monique, one thing you say in the book is that poverty is one of the most daunting challenges black girls face and that they have far greater likelihood of incarceration than girls of other races. End quote. You also explore gender bias, classism, and push-out. Why are these significant factors when examining the various reasons as to why black girls are pushed out and disproportionately disciplined? So one of the things I want to say um, is that black girls are 16 percent of female students, but they're, they make up about one-third, or they're just over a third of girls um, with a school-related arrest per the most recent data um, available. And um, there are a lot of conditions. You know, I, I approach this topic um, using a lens of intersectionality, right, a term coined by Kimberly Crenshaw to right. explore um, the need for us to examine multiple identities and the way that they interact with each other to create an, uh, a set of conditions and lived experiences. Right. And so because my approach to this work is an intersectional approach, it was critical for me to examine all of these uh, socioeconomic conditions, victimization histories, um, explicit and unintentional <laughs> biases mm-hmm. that inform how we understand black femininity and how we respond to the behaviors of black girls, given our understanding right. of black femininity. And uh, the, the, the way in which, you know, there has been a deep legacy of, of discrimination and bias and misinterpretation of uh, what it means to be black and female in America right. um, really is not a separate issue than what we're talking about in schools. Um, it's not a separate issue than the, you know, what we talk about when we explore anti-violence efforts or, um, you know, when we want to critically examine the violence against women and girls and the impact that that has on their ability to engage in meaningful learning experiences. At the root of all of this is, for me, um, uh, an opportunity for us to engage in, you know, I would say a, a constructive <laughs> critique of all that we do to um, both facilitate 
and respond okay. to the vulnerabilities of our girls. And um, talking about you know their conditions of poverty, talking about the ways in which our society has primed black girls for their own victimization, talking about um, the legacy of slavery that plays out even still in how we read black women's bodies mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. how we devalue those bodies and how we teach them to internalize this oppressive view of their bodies um, is all a critical part of this conversation that I hope Push Out begins to inspire people to take on. Uh, I don't want people to pick up the book and say, oh, well, you know, she handled it. That's what it is. You know, we're done with this. I really want this to be uh, a launching pad for strategy sessions across the country where we begin to really explore how we respond to the victimization of our girls and how we will construct learning environments that really can protect them against contact with the criminal and and juvenile legal systems. And I want to explore that before we let you go, but you've said uh, a lot. And one thing in particular is the behavior of black girls, given our history. Uh, Reading the book, one thing that stood out for me is uh, the conversation of black women or black girls being defiant, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Being disrespectful, being loud in the way in which we're being read or perceived by people who... um, don't understand us culturally, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm being nice in that way, right? <laughs> but when you think about it, you know, Sojourner Truth That's or right. Ida B. Wells That's or right. Fannie Lou Hamer or Harriet Tubman were all defiant, That's right. right? So as black women, black girls, we've interpreted defiance as something that is not inherently bad. That's right. Uh, Monique, are these attempts to label black girls delinquent or disrespectful simply an issue of cultural illiteracy or is it far more complex and rooted in American racism? Um, I think it's both. Mm -hmm. I think that you can't necessarily um, identify or or single out um, the root cause of this bias. I mean, ultimately, the the legacy of historical racism um, and gendered racism um, is critical to this conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, And the unique vulnerabilities that play out um, are important to this conversation as it pertains to the individual bias um, issue. Uh, you know, there, the question of being outspoken and how we understand that um, in our society is absolutely rooted in, you know, historical legacies of slavery and historical legacies of oppression um, that are internalized by girls mm-hmm. and by the adults um, in their lives. And I don't think that it's always intentional for the adults to uh, either render girls invisible or to be dismissive of their expressions. Um, But I do think that we have a responsibility to engage critically in um, checking our own biases Mm -hmm. (laughs) and in better understanding how implicit bias informs the decision making that impact the lives of these girls. So um, in the book, I talk to a girl I call Malika who's from the Bay Area, and she talks about being outspoken, and she says, I'm just outspoken. They're always telling us to voice our opinions, but then when we voice our opinion, we're going to get in trouble. That's so irritating, is what she says, right? And I think it's important for us to, you know, engage in in uplifting these kinds of narratives, right? These kinds of stories and these kinds of expressions that girls are telling us. We are, on one hand, telling them, speak out, be engaged. This is how you, you know, create change. This is, this is how all leaders have effectuated change. No one effectuates change by being silent and being complicit, right? right? That we engage and we confront, especially under conditions of oppression. And yet for our girls, we, we say they're loud. We, we say they're not doing it right, quote unquote. And we don't 
follow that through with um, a series of interventions or opportunities to teach our girls how to um, really apply their very valuable critique and read on uh, American expressions of racialized gender bias mm-hmm. um, in a way that can be more constructive in their lives. So I'm, I include in, in the book um, you know, two appendices, one of which is a Q&A that does provide some opportunity to at least initially have some conversations with girls, with educators, and with the community of concerned adults that um, are interested in combating the push out of black girls in schools. But I think that at the center of all of this really is, is are, are those narratives, mm-hmm. is, is our dedication to those na- narratives and uplifting those in a way that can constructively inform our responses to their conditions. One thing for me that I found really interesting, especially when we think about behavior of black girls and the way in which it's analyzed from various individuals, this is something that follows us from our early development in, in educational environments all the way into our work environments as adults. Uh, and I was pleased that you were able to expose that through the use of various stories told and pushed out uh, and that this is a particular reality that black girls and black women face in this society. Right? You know, it's so interesting you say that because now that I'm actually talking about the book and engaging in conversations that is a theme that's emerging across the country. Although the book centers at K through 12 or, you know, sort of pre-K through 12, um, many of college students, many of the college students that I engage will come up to me and say, you know, I'm dealing with that right now, (laughs) right? (laughs) Or, you know, the professionals will send me a note saying, you know, I just got into that with my supervisor. And it is something that other scholars whose shoulders I stand on have tried to explain and tried to explore and... um, Somehow, we have yet to, you know, sort of traverse that threshold into a space where folks will clearly understand that our understanding of how to be strong and lead with conviction are not worthy of others' scrutiny and criminalization. Mm. And for, you know, girls who are vulnerable to push out, that is really a critical issue, is how we come to define, you know, their attitudes, how we come to understand their expressions. And really, at the end of it all, what I'm hopeful that people will take away from that conversation is that we have a lot more work to do to better understand in the public domain what black femininity looks like for girls and to respond to that, not through a lens of judgment and punishment, mm-hmm. but to understand that these expressions, these, these, these acts of questioning are not um, an affront to authority, mm-hmm. but an expression of critical thinking, Absolutely. right? We're, 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 we're listening. That's why we respond the way we do. We feel what's happening. That's why we are responding, <laughs> right? right? And so um, I hope others will feel and listen so that they can respond also. So, That's one solution. I wanted to get your take as we wrap up. Um, What are some other solutions in addressing the disparities and what are particular methods or approaches parents, guardians can employ when confronting racially biased educational systems that is punitively more harsh on black girls? And and also, uh, you're a mother of girls. You 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 know, also, how have you been able to navigate that? You and your husband, how have you been able to navigate that reality yeah. For your your own children. Well, first, let me start with the first question, right, about, um, you know, sort of what my thoughts are on how we create an environment that's conducive to the learning of our girls, not to their push out. I say in the book that there are really four core areas that I would like to see 
developed uh, toward that goal. In the book, I talk about the development of healing-informed responses to problematic student behavior. So really looking at restorative opportunities, restorative approaches to resolving conflict with girls, um, bridging programs for girls with a delinquency history. Um, really, we've got to reexamine the impact of the dress codes and look at some of those codes of conduct through a healing-informed lens, mm. um, but also looking at what happens in the classrooms and schools. So look at the... Um, you know, the, the affirmation of education as a tool for social justice so that girls really clearly understand why they're getting an education and how it relates to their lives. Um, some emotional counseling that can be there for girls. College and career pathways. So in my work, you know, a lot of the girls, they, they want to learn. They understand that education is a critical issue for them. Um, they understand the research that says that education for girls is a critical protective factor against involvement in the juvenile and criminal legal systems. But they don't still get why they have to do it or why they have to go mm-hmm. if it's not a place where they feel safe. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's important for us to establish um, you know, school-based opportunities to lead for black girls, to really look at developing internships, having speakers come in that can make those connections for them so that they understand the value of what they're doing and how they're spending their day. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, I talk about um, responsive and debiased learning. So really looking at the integration of arts, really looking at ways to deal with um, the cultural relevance of the curriculum, the implicit bias training and professional development opportunities that might take place among the educators and other professionals in schools, so that we really construct um, an environment that understands that our girls are there, first of all, Mm -hmm. and they're there to learn. They're not there to be cute, right? And we need to understand that they are there and and co-construct an environment with them that establishes that they're there for those reasons. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of parents, you know, that's actually one of the questions in the back of the book in, in one of the appendices that asks, you know, what do I say to my daughter to encourage her to go to school or how do I begin to have these conversations about the possibility of some of the biased decision-making against my daughter. And I think it's really important for parents to understand that we are our daughter's greatest advocate, but that we cannot do it if we are also walking in and and sort of in, in a combative way. We can be, we can hold people accountable. We can be a fierce advocate without coming in to turn the school upside down, right? Mm-hmm. Now, we that may be our intention, Right. And we may need to do a little bit to challenge the institution to be accountable to the needs of our girls. But we've got a document. Mm-hmm. We've got to talk to our, our daughter. We have to understand the full scope of what's happening. We have to talk to the teachers. We have to talk to the school community because understandably, a lot of parents, when you read some of the cases that are, are included in the book or when you hear cases like the one most recently out of Chicago where a six-year-old girl was placed in handcuffs for taking candy off of the teacher's desk because the teacher wanted to teach her a lesson, quote-unquote, those kinds of situations are infuriating. And you could absolutely see how a parent could come in and be ready to put the whole place in order. Um, At the same time, we've got to be clear that when we come to correct we have to have our pieces in order. So my recommendations are for there to be an intense amount of documentation, some discussions that take place, and some clear ways in which community can come together 
with a series of uh, facilitated questions, and I include some of those questions, you know, sort of core questions that I think parents should be asking when they come to the school to talk about these kinds of issues. Extremely helpful, by the way. Uh, good. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, so clear questions that parents should ask, clear questions that the child may ask if she's old enough and feels empowered enough mm-hmm. to really begin a conversation. I am of the mind that we can resolve this problem. I really believe that. I don't think this is something that cannot be resolved. But I don't think that it's going to be resolved by policymakers alone. I don't think it's going to be resolved by educators alone. And I don't think it's going to be resolved by parents or students alone. I think we have to come together and have a conversation about the kind of learning environment we want for our girls and the kinds of community structures that need to be in place to facilitate their well-being. And only when we come together to have these conversations in a structured way will we actually see improved outcomes for our girls. And that's what this is all about. Absolutely. And that'll do it for this edition of Making Contact. Special thanks to Dr. Monique Morris, the author of Push Out, The Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools. Share this episode with friends and talk about it. Just visit our webpage where you can download this episode and past shows. You can also subscribe to our podcast or follow us on Twitter at radioproject.org. Lisa Rudman is our executive director. Producers include Anita Johnson and Monica Lopez. Audience engagement and web director, Sabine Blazin. Development associate, Vera Tykolsker. And I'm Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. Making Contact.